I'm Kendall Giles, and this is the Techno Slipstream Podcast, where we explore what you need to know about the intersection of science, technology, and society. This is episode six. So just a quick announcement, we are back with another episode. As a new podcast, we are on the free tier of our podcast platform host, and that limits us to just two hours per month of content. And we blew through that pretty quickly in the first five episodes, so I had to pause until we could get allocated another two hours. Right now, we are good for another month's worth of content, though if you can, please support the podcast on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Kendall Giles. I'd really appreciate your support. Okay, in this episode, we continue our deep dive series into automation. And today, we dig really deep. In fact, today, we'll consider technology as things. And we'll look at how technology mediates how we experience the world. In this episode, we'll reach back to first principles and establish a philosophical foundation for considering technology in our lives. To get this philosophical grounding, we'll take a look at Peter Paul Verbeek's book, What Things Do, Philosophical Reflections on Technology, Agency, and Design. So we'll work through this book during this episode, but stick with me to the end, since especially with AI and automation systems, we really need to go build these systems based on solid first principles. And so at the end, I'll explicitly discuss why this philosophical foundation is important to us in the AI and automation systems we are building today and will build in the future. Okay, let's dive in. So the author of the book we'll be discussing in this episode is Peter Paul Verbeek, who is a professor of the philosophy of technology at the University of Twente in the Netherlands. His research focuses on human technology relations and the philosophy of design. The specific book we'll discuss today is called What Things Do, Philosophical Reflections on Technology, Agency, and Design, and I'm reading the second printing, English copy from 2005. I'll start with the big picture of what I think he's trying to do with the book, and then we'll dip into some of the details. And finally, we'll circle back and talk about why this is so important with AI and automation systems. Okay, so the big picture. Traditionally, humans view themselves as the main subjects in the world. After all, we are free to interact in the world. With science, we try to learn about the world. And with our stories, we try to communicate what we've learned as well as our hopes, fears, and dreams to others. Now, We are in the world, of course, and in addition to nature, we also have objects that we've created, technology, like computers, cell phones, hammers, cars, MRI machines, and rocket ships. We traditionally think of these technologies as simple tools. They are neutral things that we just use to solve problems as we go about living our lives. But especially if you consider the AI and automation technologies we've discussed in previous podcast episodes, devices that can move independently in the world, sense the world around them, 
make decisions based on the data collected, and then implement that decision by operating in the world, taking series of actions increasingly done without human intervention. This traditional view of us as the subjects and technology as the simple objects is actually dangerous. So the main thesis of the book is that instead of being mere tools, technology shapes how we interact with the world. Technology affects our actions and experiences in the world. The internet, for example, is a technology that connects us to other people and devices. It allows us to be entertained. It allows us to work, to learn things, and even is critical to the proper operation of the devices in our homes and businesses. But the internet is not just a neutral tool. It can change our behavior or how we experience things. It changes our culture. It can connect us with each other, and it can also divide us against each other. It can affect who votes or who has heat or air conditioning. It can surveil us, and it can collect and give our private, personal information to others. So technologies help shape how we interact with the world as well as shape our experiences in the world. They aren't just simple, neutral tools or objects, which was the old way to think about them. The term that Verbeek uses in the book for how we should instead think about technologies is that technologies mediate our relationships with the world. Again, we'll circle back and talk more about why this is an important concept at the end, but let's first dig a little deeper to better understand what the author means by technological mediation. Verbeek builds on the work of Don Eide. Don is a retired professor of philosophy who developed a number of important ideas in the philosophy of technology, especially regarding the different relationships humans can have with different technologies. For example, as I speak this sentence, I am looking at my computer screen through a pair of reading glasses. I do not look at my glasses. Rather, I use my glasses to view the world. ID calls this an embodiment relation. For another type of relation I might have with technology, consider the thermometer. I read the thermometer in order to know something about the world. I do not use the thermometer to view the world. Instead, I learn about the world by interpreting the thermometer. ID calls this a hermeneutic relation. And I mentioned speaking into my microphone, which is connected to my computer. Those technologies are the sole focus of my attention and interaction. ID calls this an alterity relation. And finally, consider again the internet. ID might call this a background relation, like the lights or the air conditioner. It is a technology that I do not see, really, or directly interact with, or frankly even consider as I go about my life, unless, of course, it breaks down. Today, however, we have developed technologies that might have trouble fitting into one of the four types of relations ID identify. For example, consider a brain implant used to help treat Parkinson's disease. That is more than just an embodiment relation. Here, the combination of the implant plus the person, is a new hybrid being. Also, consider something like a smart car with AI systems that allow us to interact with the car and allow the car to know about the world, such as how many occupants are in the vehicle, 
where it is geographically, how fast it is moving, and how much charge is left on its batteries. Here, the car is more than just a background technology. It has a form of ambient intelligence that can interact with and make decisions about its environment and us, just as we can interact with it. But the point is that in different ways, technologies affect our relationship with the world. One way is that technologies shape how we can be in the world. They affect our actions and practices. Consider, for example, in the U.S., people's love of cars means that they can live far away from their workplace. That technology affects where they choose to live and work. Another way that technologies affect our relationship with the world is that technologies shape our perceptions and experiences. Social media, for example, affects our political views and how we perceive the world. So this is what Verbeek means by technological mediation. And the book is his argument for why mediation theory is a better way to view technology than older theories, such as those proposed by Martin Heidegger or Carl Jaspers. The book goes into a lot more detail about all of these examples, and he builds up his argument from philosophical first principles. Now, a, a podcast discussion about those details might be a bridge too far even for this podcast. So now that we better understand mediation theory, let's circle back to why these concepts are important for us today. As I hope you can imagine, the implications for how technologies mediate our actions and perceptions are significant. There's no dimension of human life today where technological mediation does not have a role, from how we learn about and understand the world around us, to how we interact with each other, to our perceptions of right and wrong. And the implications will only become more important as AI and automation technologies become more pervasive. With these kinds of powerful, complex systems, we increasingly give them agency to act in the world on our behalf. The problem is that we are still writing technology policy and designing these complex, powerful systems using the old ways of thinking about technology such, again, as the theories by Heidegger and Jaspers, where technology is just a tool. For example, there is a common belief that technologies are neutral, such as the so-called value neutrality thesis promoted by some even today. Proponents of those types of views haven't quite realized that when the engineers design and build these powerful, complex AI and automation systems, the engineers are building into the systems their own faults and biases. When the engineer draws a box to designate the boundary between what is inside the system and what is outside the system, they aren't realizing that the engineer is actually inside the box, not outside the box, as is traditionally taught. A well-known example of this is the case of a new AI system Amazon developed to help increase the diversity of new employees hired to work for the company. Many of you know that, especially in technology companies, the number of females hired is historically low. So Amazon wanted to build an AI system to help eliminate any possible gender biases in their hiring process. But after building an AI system to screen resumes and recommend candidates for hire, the result was that their hiring process discriminated even more against females. The reason? They trained their AI system to recognize good candidates 
based on the qualities of previous applicants that were then hired by the company. But since the company historically rejected female candidates in favor of male candidates, the AI system learned this behavior. So the company actually taught their AI system to identify and reject resumes from female candidates. Another example, consider AI-based systems that are being used to predict where future crimes are likely to occur or to suggest sentences for defendants. Let's assume these systems are meant to reduce bias, good intentions all around. But like the Amazon example, consider the way these systems are being designed and built. If you're at all familiar with the systemic historical biases against low-income and minority populations in our society, the results from these smart risk assessment systems can be deadly. Even worse, because these AI systems are giving assessments and results based on data, and this is a podcast so you can't see my fingers making air quotes around data, the judges who use these systems to impose sentences will have cover for their decisions. Thus, the concepts of mediation theory that Peter Paul Verby develops in his book, What Things Do, are important because they show how technologies are more than just tools. They're not just neutral. Technologies mediate our relationship to the world, affecting our actions and our perceptions. This affects all of us, but as an engineering professor, I'm interested in this because mediation theory has implications for how we teach our students, the types of research we do, and the systems that we design and build. Consider, for example, that if I want to conduct research at my university involving a survey, maybe I want to email a set of questions to study participants, or maybe conduct interviews. Say I want to ask the participants about the effectiveness of their IT systems they use in their companies, for example. In that case, before I can actually conduct my study, I must petition my university's IRB, or Institutional Review Board, to ask them for permission. In other words, there's an institutional body designed to make sure the humans involved in my study are not negatively impacted by my research. If the IRB thinks my study will harm the participants in any way, they will not permit me to do my research. But if instead of a research study involving human participants, say, I want to design an AI surveillance system. Despite the fact that such AI systems pose major societal risks, I likely won't need institutional review because these review boards are only concerned with human participants of the actual study, not societal effects of the technologies I produce. Thus, not only is mediation theory relevant at the design level, but it's also relevant at the institutional policy level. Some universities are starting to think about this seriously. Stanford, for example, has an Ethics and Society Review Board that evaluates faculty research projects in addition to the human participant studies. But obviously, much more work needs to be done in this space. Google, for example, fired the leaders of its own ethics teams. So in some cases, we're actually taking steps in the wrong direction for the types of societies we might actually want to live in. So that's why I think Verbeek's book is interesting and important for helping us understand our relationship with technology as we do our best to be in the world. And with that, 
we wrap up episode six of the Techno Slipstream podcast. Thank you for listening and please be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support this podcast, consider heading over to patreon.com forward slash Kendall Giles to our Patreon page to sign up. I could use your support so that these episodes won't get removed and to allow for more upload bandwidth so I can create more content. In addition to supporting the show on Patreon, you can sign up to get copies of the show transcripts, including all the links to articles and books that I discuss in each episode. In any case, again, thank you for listening. And until next time, I'll see you in the Techno Slipstream.